hello and welcome to the EMJ podcast. I'm Simon Carley and this is August 2017. I'm going to take you through some of the interesting papers in the EMJ this month. So what have we been up to? Lots of exciting things here in the UK and around the world. Uh, what's EMJ got to offer for us this month? Well, there's quite a bit of a feature on pharmacists, something which the EMJ has touched on before. In the UK, we don't have a lot of ED pharmacists, but around the world, people would find that amazingly surprising, actually. I think in the US, it's much more common, for instance. And this idea that we can have pharmacists working alongside the emergency medicine team, or in fact, joining the emergency medicine team, to look at a really rather complex and high-risk group of patients who come through the ED. So our patients often have polypharmacy. They're there for a short period of time. The potential for drug error is high. And so I think it's an area where logically you'd think this would make a difference. So in this month we've got a few elements that surround this issue of ED farms. We've got a couple of papers and we've got an interesting editorial from a friend of mine over in the US. So first paper is looking at the clinical relevance of pharmacist interventions in an emergency department by Perez Moreno et al. And The idea behind this paper is they were looking at the clinical relevance of pharmacist interventions on patient care in emergencies, looking at the severity of detective errors. That was the main thing. And secondly, they wanted to look at the most frequent type of interventions and the types of drugs involved um, to look at what the clinical pharmacies actually did. So this is over six months observational prospective study at an ED in Spain. 400 embedded hospitals, so a medium-sized hospital, really. And they recorded the interventions carried out by the clinical pharmacists in the ED. And what they were really looking for is whether the pharmacists were doing things like medication reconciliation or other activities and whether the drug involved belonged to what they describe as high alert medications. So I think that's something that happens in Spain, but it's high risk medications. I guess things like prescribing heparin for patients who've got a PE, uh, unfractionated heparin are coming into hospital. So it's quite difficult calculations. And then to evaluate the severity of the errors detected and the clinical relevance of the intervention using uh, various different scales to look at what the impact of that was in terms of error. And so the relationship between clinical relevance of pharmacist intervention and the severity of medication errors was assessed and they looked at whether there was a relationship between those two things using stats, clever thing, clever people. So using odd ratios and spearmans, rig correlation coefficients. So what do they find? Well, it's a six-month period. So during the observation period, pharmacists reviewed the history, the pharmacotherapy history, if you like, and the medication orders of just under 3,000 patients. And amongst that, there were a total of about 991, so just under 1,000 interventions across 557 patients. So that's quite a significant impact over that period of time. So of those, just over two-thirds of the errors were detected during medication reconciliation, something which I don't think doctors and emergency clinicians, nurses, doctors, don't do very well, actually. So medication errors were considered severe in just over half of those cases, and nearly about two-thirds of those, the pharmacist's intervention was considered relevant. That's really quite big numbers, really. And about 10% of those drugs were involved in these high-alert type risk drugs. So a fairly significant impact and and, in a group of medications which are quite severe. So there was some linkage between the severity of the medication errors and the clinical significance of the pharmacist's intervention, which I guess is what you'd relate. So conclusions of this study, so this is a a, a single-centre Spanish study, is that the clinical pharmacists identified and intervened on a high number of severe medication errors and suggests that, well, basically what I thought before really is that having pharmacists in the ED and having them join the team can help us 
both with diagnostics with safety and for doing the better things for our patients. So some evidence there, but it is single center. It is uh, from a European thing and it's an observational study and it's not an RCT, which you could do in these areas. So the second paper around this pharmacy issue is from Belgium, and that's from De Winter et al. and developing a decision rule to optimize clinical pharmacist resources for medication reconciliation in the emergency department. So similar sorts of things. And the idea behind this study was to look at the development of a clinical decision rule. We love a clinical decision rule in emergency medicine to detect patients admitted to hospital at risk of at least one discrepancy during regular medication history acquisition again with favorable feasibility considering time and budget constraints because you can't just do everything for everybody so what do they do well they looked at previous studies uh, studies that are looked at in belgium and they describe 3,592 medication histories, which is quite a lot. They got the data, split it into a training and a validation set, which is a good idea, and a model predicting the number of discrepancies was derived from the training set with an idea, statistical analysis, to how we would look at that in the validation set. And the performance of the model of the clinical decision rule was then tested, so basically derived in one set and then tested in the next. So what did they find? Well, interestingly, the variables that were retained in the prediction model, so the things which were likely to predict problems with medication were things like age, gender, the medical discipline for which the patient was admitted, degree of physician training, the season of admission, which is interesting, the type of care, the number of drugs, high-risk drugs, and drugs acting on the alimentary tract and metabolism. And then the obvious things like antithrombotics, antihemorrhagics, antianemics, cardiovascular drugs, MSK drugs. So quite a lot of things were associated with this prediction. And the final clinical decision rule resulted in an alert rate of about, about a third of the patients coming through with a positive predictive value of 74%. So what that means is that about a third of the patients that you apply this to will flag up and then about three quarters of those there will be some issue with the medication that you need to address. So that's quite an interesting study and it's a way of us suppose, suppose focusing our minds on what medication errors might occur in the ED. So this final clinical decision rule again it's it's, it's relatively single center so it needs to be looked at again but it allowed here the identification of the majority of patients with a potential discrepancy within a feasible workload for the pharmacy staff. So a way of identifying and targeting certain patients to those who really need the expertise. So a first step really towards integrating this into an electronic medical record or a scoring system of some sort. So interesting, if you're interested in pharmacies, putting them in your emergency department, these are a couple of papers that you should read. So once you've had a look at those two papers, it is very much worthwhile going and having a read of the editorial by Zlatan Korolik and my friend Brian Hayes, who I met through Twitter, another great foam ped person, but an ED pharmacist guys over from the US who talks about the history of how this has worked in the United States of America going back into the 1970s and the effect and the impact of having pharmacists in the emergency department really from a safety point of view but also actually to improve the care of patients so i commend that to you and having a look at the two papers and that really takes me on to the second of the commentaries this month and that's about major trauma and about whether or not we're looking at major trauma in the way that perhaps i imagined it was when i first entered emergency medicine and when I first got in there, I guessed I, it was all about interpersonal violence. It was about high-speed road traffic accidents. It was about injuries, it was about falls and that high level, a disease really of young people. But it's quite noticeable now that we're seeing sort of fairly profound, dramatic changes to the demographics of the patients that we see in the emergency department. 
So Tim Coates and Fiona Leckie have written a really nice commentary talking about a couple of papers in the article this month by Hawley et al. And also a recent report from the Trauma and Audit Research Network on major trauma and older people. And I've seen some of this data presented in the past and it's incredibly interesting. So basically what we're looking at now is that major trauma isn't just a disease of the young, but it's actually a disease of considerable impact in the elderly population. So in 2016, the typical case of major trauma is no longer a RTA, but is actually an older male admitted after a fall of, of less than two metres. So a very different thing from perhaps the more dramatic stuff that we see on the TV. So these older patients, a similar distribution of injury score and injury type as compared to the younger patients. But, and I think we all see this, we don't see the patients coming through the major trauma system we don't see them flown in by helicopter and dramatically delivered with the blue lights and the scream of sirens but actually they're much more likely to be wheeled into the miners end of the department so they're more difficult to spot when they first arrive and that has sort of fairly major implications for how we manage the patients in the ED and about how we spot them and how sometimes actually patients often with quite severe head injuries can actually get through the system without being noticed so this discovery really of these major trauma patients in the elderly population it's interesting to to think about whether or not that's something which has always been there but we've not really thought about it or spotted it or whether it's actually a new trend i suspect it's more of the former but i think when we're considering and this is what um, tim and fiona say is that when we're considering how we set up a major trauma service, we do need to orientate it to the full range of traumas that come through and not perhaps to the more traditional model of what takes place and what occurs and arrives by helicopter. It's, it's a much more broad view of trauma than that. And these elderly patients, they deserve the same level of care and intervention because you can still get fantastic outcomes if you look after them properly. And linked to that is a paper this month looking at data over six years from a UK trauma centre looking at traumatic brain injury in the older adults. And this is a paper by Hawley et al. from the West Midlands looking between 2008 and 2014 and taking data from the Trauma Audit and Research Network, which if you don't know about, you should. You should just go Google Tarn and Audit and Research and Trauma. You'll read all about it. It's a fantastic system that's been running for a long period of time. And they looked at all patients over the age of 65 years who were admitted um, with head or brain injuries. And they, they looked at, what was it, 4,413 patients admitted with trauma meeting TARN criteria. And of those, and this is really interesting, 1,389 were over 65 years old. And 45% of them, 624, had a traumatic brain injury. So that's a significant workload for an emergency centre and a trauma centre. And those falls accounted for 85% of all traumatic brain injuries, or rather, falls accounted for 85% of all traumatic brain injuries in this group. And most of those were moderate or severe. But of the 279 patients with subdural hematoma, 28% of them had neurosurgery. Fairly, again, fairly significant numbers. Most patients survived and 57% had a good outcome at Glasgow Outcome Score at discharge, which I think is important because we're sometimes a little bit nihilistic about the management of elderly trauma. And we shouldn't be. If we treat them well, they can still have excellent outcomes. So unsurprisingly, the older you are, the more likely you are to die. So mortality was associated with increasing age. But the most important thing, of course, was the fact that the severity of injury really predicted outcome.
So the major conclusion from that really is that, uh, it's, you know, say it again, patients with traumatic brain injury represented 45% of all trauma cases meeting TARN inclusion criteria in this study. That's really interesting. Falls at home accounted for most of it. Again, so they're not going to come in by helicopter. And that it is this issue of moderate or severe traumatic brain injury that causes a problem. And yet over half of them make a good recovery, which is excellent. What does this mean? It means that when we're thinking about prevention, we need to actually look at the home and not just at the roadside. And we need to look more about how we treat these patients in the emergency department, how they get access to neurosurgery, how they're treated and how we rehabilitate them. But clearly food for thought if you're in a major trauma system in the UK. Now from trauma, we're going to go to cardiac disease. Now, big conflict of interest here, of course. So this is a paper by Greenslade, Cullen and colleagues in the EMJ this month looking at the MAX score and the TMAX score. Now the MAX score is a Manchester Acute Coronary Syndrome score and the TMAX is the troponin only Manchester Acute Coronary Syndrome score. Now, big conflict of interest because I work in the same department with Rick Bodie, who's done fabulous work developing both MAX and TMAX. But of course, when you derive a score, when you develop any score, any scoring system, then it'll always work well in the population which you develop it in. That's kind of how scores work. The question is whether or not you can validate them in other populations. And so that's what this study does. So this study looks at EDs in Australia and New Zealand and looks at whether things like the MAX and the TMAX rules actually can risk stratify patients in those other groups because clearly the better scores will be applicable in more than one patient population. So what they've done here is they've, as I said, prospectively collected data from two EDs in Australia and New Zealand and assigned a probability of ACS based on the MAX and the TMAX rules. And I don't know whether you know this, but one of the things which increasingly scoring systems are able to do, and I think it is to some extent the future of emergency medicine, is not just to put people into low, medium or high risk groups, but to actually give people on the outcome of the score, uh, almost a bespoke probability of disease. And that's what we're seeing now with some of the, the cardiac risk scores, such as MAX and TMAX. So what they do is they put you into probability states, go right down to about less than 2%, uh, 5%, and then up, right up to 95% based on things like history and ECG findings. And also in the TMAX rule, of course, the initial troponin. So looking at the general standard outcome for these, which is 30-day diagnosis for AMI or major coronary events, and an interesting approach. So they've looked, again, at a reasonable number of people, so 1,244 patients presenting to the ED with chest pain or symptoms suggestive of myocardial infarction, of which about 10% were diagnosed with AMI, which, again, is fairly similar to other studies around this group of patients. And they categorised reasonably well, actually, so there was just one false negative case for both rules, making the sensitivity of them around about 99%, which I think should even satisfy some of the more litigious healthcare economy systems around the world, shall we say. So conclusion of that, and again, I'm declaring my bias because I've been in publication and supported these papers in the past, but the MAX and the TMAX pretty accurately risk stratify very low risk patients, which is the group that we might be able to send home. And TMAX, so max plus troponin would allow more patients to be discharged early. So what it does mean is we can probably use these in the emergency department, perhaps, but have a think about it yourself. And the potential for missed major acute coronary events means that further outpatient testing for coronary artery disease may be required for some patients. And I think that's an important point. It gets to the idea that when we're in the emergency department, we diagnose whether you're having an acute event today, 
but it doesn't rule out the potential for ischemic heart disease. And that may be something that you need to look at in future. So thank you to all the authors of that for looking at this important subject. And I think we are generally starting to move now towards a much better management of low risk chest pain in the emergency department. And crikey, we really need to with the problems that we have with bed base and overcrowding and flow through a hospital system. So great to see this and more work in this area to follow. So what else should you have a look at this month? Well, I don't want to keep you much longer, but there's quite a few other papers which I would recommend you have a look at. There's some bets interesting looking at lidocaine with propofol to reduce pain on injection. So should we be doing that? Answer, mm, probably. And there's also an interest of mine about another bet looking at whether or not cognitive forcing strategies and cognitive debiasing actually make a difference to errors in cognition amongst emergency department doctors. And actually, although it's very popular at the moment, it doesn't appear there's a radically huge amount of evidence to support that. So if that's an interest of yours like mine, I would have a look at the couple of bets. I'd also have a look at a nice review looking at the management of childhood epistaxis, something I see a lot in the paediatric emergency department. So some interesting information there. And also, if you're interested in pre-hospital care and invent medicine, there's a practical approach to events medicine provision. And I think with, with recent events, certainly in Manchester, which is, um, if you remember the Ariana Grande concert bombing and also events around football stadium around the world of late events medicine is really important actually not just for normal crowd support but also the potential for major incidents so i think that's really turned out at a topical time and i'd read that and it's also written by some of my colleagues here in manchester so in summary another pretty interesting uh, week and month in the emj i hope you're enjoying your summer or winter depending on where you are in the world and have a read. Have a look. There's plenty more articles in the EMJ. Um, have a look at the abstracts and have a look and see. There's always something in there for you as an emergency physician or clinician or pre-hospitalist around the world. We'll see you in September. <laughs>